All right. Well, good morning, everyone. That was even worse than the early service. And we go through this every week, so we're going to do it again. Good morning, everyone. Much better. Good to see you here today. We're glad you came to worship with us today. If you are a guest of ours this morning, we're especially glad that you're here. And if you wouldn't mind, there's a communication card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill that out, drop it in one of the wooden boxes on your way out this morning that are on the back walls. We would greatly appreciate that. We would love to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, I have just a quick little announcement that I was asked to make this morning. As many of you are aware, we had the memorial service for Susie Duck on Friday, and the Duck family has asked me to tell you guys thank you. Thank you very much for your love, your support uh, that you have shown them during this time, and not just for this week, but over the past year, as you've just loved on them and encouraged them. And Friday was a huge blessing to them as many of you stepped up in a powerful way uh, to show your love to them. So they say thank you, and we love that family, and we will continue to be around to support them in the days ahead. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Acts, the 17th chapter, Acts chapter 17. Today we're going to be talking about a disciple-making revolution. There's a movie that came out a couple months back called The Jesus Revolution. Anybody see that movie? All right, we got three more moviegoers here than in the late service than the early service. But it's a great movie that came out, and it's a movie that is based off of the book uh, that a pastor in California, Greg Laurie, wrote in 2018. The title of the book is Jesus Revolution, How God Transformed an Unlikely Generation and How He Can Do It Again Today. The movie is about how a movement was started to reach the hippie generation for Christ. And Through that movement, a revolution was started as God used faithful followers of Christ to reach out to a group that people said there is no hope for. They've gone too far. They cannot be reached with the gospel. And God used a group of people to reach out to them and change their lives. It was a Jesus revolution. At that time, the world was upside down. People looked at them and said, how can you go so far and be that far away from God? And there is no hope. Well, we live in an upside down world today as well. Would you agree? We live in a world that thinks differently than the way we think they should think. It is a world that is rapidly decaying in morals and no desire to even know what truth is. We have a generation of people today who embrace as truth a philosophy which says there is no truth. That just baffles my mind. I'm going to hang on to this philosophy and I'm going to believe it with everything that I have. It is truth for me that there is no truth that is out there. How do we get to that kind of point where there is no truth? We live in a world today that says anything goes. I can live my life however I want to live my life. I can say anything I want to say. I can do anything I want to do. And you have absolutely no right to tell me different. It's a crazy messed up world. 
We live in a world today where everybody is just running around here and there doing their own thing without any regard for God whatsoever. I remember a preacher back when I was young many years ago made this statement. I don't know where the statement originated from, but he made this statement that said the sins that once used to sneak down the alleyways now march down Main Street and we are forced to accept them. How much truer is that for our world today than it was even then? But as we look through Scripture, we see that things have not changed over the years. The passage we're going to look at in just a moment, we're going to see that Paul had the same kind of issues in his life that they had in the 70s, that they had now. Because we have an enemy that is at work. And just as they needed a revolution, a Jesus revolution in the 60s and 70s, I think we could all say that we need a Jesus revolution today, right? Everybody agree with that? We need a Jesus revolution. And Paul said the same thing back in his day. There was a need for a Jesus revolution. Now over the past couple of weeks since Easter, we've been taking a look at what our role is now that we have celebrated Easter, Easter is a great celebration. And if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at the disciples and Jesus is risen. They've had a great time. They've seen Jesus, but now Jesus hasn't shown up to them in a short time and they don't know what to do. What is our role now after Easter? What is our role after Jesus comes out of the grave? And so they went back and they did what was normal, what was custom for them to do. And they went back to fishing. And then Jesus met with them on the shore that next morning after they'd been fishing all night. And then it was just a little bit later that Jesus gives them their marching orders. And he says that here's what your job is. I'm going away, but here's what you're going to do while I am gone. And we see this. We touched on it last week. We've hit on it for the last couple of weeks. I want to throw this verse out again. It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where we see the words of Jesus where he says, All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And then he gives a beautiful promise and he says, and I am with you always. So Jesus gives his followers, the disciples that followed him, he gives them their marching orders. He said, here's your job. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to go into all of the world, everywhere you go. And you're going to take the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And you're going to teach it to the people and you're going to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Now, I want you to keep in mind just for a very simple definition that a disciple, a disciple that we're talking about, is a follower of Jesus Christ. So anyone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is now a disciple of Christ. And as a disciple of Christ, we're striving every day to be more and more like Christ. I mean, I, I hope that today I'm a little bit more like Christ than I was yesterday. And I certainly hope that I'm a little bit more like Christ than I was a year ago, 10 years ago. I hope that I am growing to look more and more like Christ in the world. But as a disciple of Christ, that's not where it stops. It's not just for me to be more and more like Christ every day. It is now to go into all of the world and to share the gospel of Christ with everyone that I can. 
to take this gospel message, the same message that I received when my life was changed by Jesus Christ, to take that into a world that needs Jesus desperately. Now, just a moment, I asked you, does our world need Jesus? And most of you said, yes, our world needs Jesus today. So if our world needs Jesus and we believe that our world needs Jesus, we say it, do our actions show it? Are we going out and being disciples that make disciples that will make other disciples in our world? Now, the Apostle Paul was not one of the first disciples that was there with Jesus that day when he gives the mission to go into all of the world. But the Apostle Paul is like us. He's one that comes along later as a disciple of Christ. Matter of fact, we see the Apostle Paul for the first time in the book of Acts in chapter 7. And what we see Paul doing is at the time where Stephen, a great man of faith, a man that's doing a lot of uh, good things for the Lord, he's the first martyr that we know about for the Christian faith. And while they were gathered around getting ready to stone Stephen, they look at Paul, which by the way, his name was not Paul at that time. He was called Saul of Tarsus. They looked at Saul of Tarsus to get his approval to stone Stephen to death. He was a man that had power, but he was a man that was on mission to take out the followers of Christ. We see Saul a little bit later as he is on his way to Damascus. And the reason that he is going to Damascus is so that he can have Christians arrested and persecuted. But something changes for Saul while he's on his way to Damascus. As he is going down that road on his way to Damascus, there's a bright light that shines. And Saul, at that point in time in his life, comes face to face with that bright light with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior. He hears a voice on that road that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you doing this? And through that experience, that encounter on that road, Paul's life is drastically changed. And it was after this that his name is changed to Paul. But his life has changed. He now becomes a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ. He is sold out to the cause of Jesus Christ. A man that was going around doing everything he could to stop this movement now becomes one of the greatest leaders in this very movement. A life-changing encounter that he has. As we read about Paul in the book of Acts, we see that after this, Paul begins a mission. And his mission is to start churches, to see others come to know Christ the way that he knows Christ, to teach others to follow Christ in their daily life, to teach others how to be a disciple of Christ and to be a disciple of Christ in a way that they make disciples of Christ. And we have recorded in the book of Acts three different missionary journeys that Paul goes on as they're planting churches in different cities and telling people about Christ in these cities. And where we're looking at in our passage today, he's on his second missionary journey. And we see Paul and we see Silas as they show up in a city called Thessalonica. Look with me, if you would, at Acts chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. 
says, Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. But some of the Jews were jealous. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers. Instead, they took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted. And now they are here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. The people of the city as well as the city council were thrown into turmoil by these reports, so the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them. So here we have Paul. He shows up in the city of Thessalonica, and God is using him to share the gospel. God is using him to teach others what it means to be a follower of Christ. And great things are happening. We see this when you get over to verse 4. We see that a lot of people came to know Christ. They became believers. It said they joined Paul and Silas, which means that they accepted the truth that they were sharing. And now they become believers as well. You know, anywhere that Paul went, wherever he traveled, there was either a revival or there was a riot. And a lot of places there was both. And that's exactly what we see here. There's a revival that's taking place where people are coming to know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And then when you get down to verse 5, you see something change. And here's what changes. There was some of the Jews that were in the synagogue with them. They're hearing what Paul's got to say. They're not buying into this. They're not believing this. So what do they do? They go get a few other people. It says a couple of other people to join in with them. So they persuade a few others to join in on their bandwagon that we don't like what these men are doing. We don't like the message that they're giving. We don't like the gospel that they're spreading. And so they encourage the other couple that they go and get to go out and find more people to start a riot. Now does that sound anything like what's going on in our world today? You get a couple of people, they don't like what you're doing. They don't like what's going on, so what do they do? They go and find a couple of other people that they can convince, they can persuade to come along with them. And then they encourage those other people to go out and find a group of people that will go out and riot for their cause. And the funny thing is, is a lot of those people that are rioting for the cause don't even know what the cause is. They just like the opportunity to get out and make a voice known. Not any different in our day than it was in Paul's day. The same thing is happening. And here's why. Let me remind you today that the gospel is a divider. The gospel message is a divider. 
Satan is never happy when people are coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Satan is never happy when the truth of God's Word is being shared and the light of the Gospel is shining on people's lives where they can see the darkness and they repent of that darkness. Satan is never happy when things are working in God's favor and so he's going to rise up and he's going to do everything he can to shut that down. And he's going to call in every uh, avenue he has. He's going to call in all the demons. He's going to do whatever it takes to shut that down and start riots, whatever it takes. Satan is never happy. But I'm reminded in Ephesians 6, 12 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. My struggle is not against the men and the women who come up against the gospel message. Our struggle goes much deeper than that. It is a spiritual battle that is going on for the souls of men. It's a spiritual battle that is going on as the gospel is being shared. And we need to remember this, that sometimes when we stand on the principles of God, when we are actively sharing the gospel of Christ with a lost world, that you probably are not going to be the most favored person in the room. And there's going to be an enemy that's going to come against you, and he's going to attack you with everything that he has. And we can sit back and say, well, I, I don't want that. And then we question, is it worth it if we've got to go through all of that? I have the answer to that, and I told the early service I had the answer, and I'd get back to it later, and I forgot to get back to it, so I'm not going to skip it now. Yes, it is worth it. Our struggles here on this earth for a short time are worth it because we're not talking about issues that are just for today. We're talking about eternity and the souls of men and women for eternity. I think we need to be reminded of that sometimes in the church, don't you? I mean, it's easy for us to sit in our comfortable chairs and in our walls and say, yes, our world needs Jesus. They need Jesus as much now as ever before. They need Jesus today. And then to walk out the doors and act like we've never heard that message before. And that is sad. That we have the answer that the world needs. And how many times do we keep the answer to ourselves right in the middle of all this I want you to see what I believe is one of the greatest most fascinating passages in the Bible in verse 6 it says Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world now here's two guys that are going around they're sharing the gospel they're planting churches they're telling people about Jesus and these people stand up and say that's Paul and Silas they're the ones that are causing trouble all over the world I love the way that other versions put this and word it it says those are the guys that's them they're the ones that are turning the world upside down and now they have come into our city to do the exact same thing what a testimony what if the world could say that about us that they are turning our world upside down. But here's a reality. They really weren't turning their world upside down. Because Satan and sin had already done that. That's what Satan does. He turns everything upside down. And what these guys were doing is they were bringing in the truth. They were bringing in the gospel message that was taking that which is upside down and now turning it right side up. 
And that's what Jesus does. That's what the gospel message does. <coughs> Sorry, we live in a world today that has decided that which used to be right is now wrong. And that which used to be wrong is now right. The devil has literally turned everything upside down in our world. And he's been doing that way since the beginning back in the Garden of Eden. That is his plan. That is his goal. That is his strategy. And by the way, he does a pretty good job at it. But listen to me closely today. What Satan and sin have turned upside down, Jesus can turn right side up. What Satan and sin have torn apart, Jesus can mend back together. What Satan and sin have divided and destroyed, Jesus can bind back together and He can build it back together stronger than it was before. A life that has been torn apart by Satan, that has been turned upside down by Satan, that is turned right side up by Jesus Christ will be stronger and better than ever because of the work that Jesus Christ is doing in them and through them. So let's not get discouraged by what Satan is doing in the world, but let's remain encouraged by the work that Jesus Christ is still doing in the world. Because it's easy for us to see that, yeah, Satan is working. Yeah, things are not getting better. They seem to be getting worse. But can I let you in on a little secret today? God is still moving. And he is still on his throne. And Jesus Christ is still changing lives today. And I am proof of that. And so are you if you have given your life to Jesus Christ. God is working. Jesus is moving in this gospel message that he has given us to go out into the world and share is a powerful message. And we need to stand firm in the opportunities that we have to be the light of Christ that shines his light everywhere we go. Shines his light on the darkness of this world. Heard a story one time of a little girl that was in Sunday school and she was learning all the books of the Bible. And she was so proud. She had been memorizing them. She had them all in order. And she finally got them down where she could quote them all from beginning to the end. And she was with her mom and she said, Mom, Mom, I know all the books of the Bible. And her mom said, really? Well, tell them to me. And she starts with Genesis. She goes all the way through. And then she said, and the last book of the Bible is Revolution. Now, there's some truth in that, isn't there? There's some truth in that. She didn't know it at the time. When we look at the life of Paul, we see that Paul was involved in a revolution. When we look at those early disciples, they were involved in a revolution. And what we need today, more than ever, is a revolution. And the kind of revolution that I'm talking about is not the kind of revolution where we stand up and try to overthrow a government. The kind of revolution that I'm talking about today is where we are in a involved with God, where He is taking those things which are dead and He's bringing them back to life. A revolution where God is at work in the hearts of people and we are sharing Christ with others in a way that the light of Christ shines so brightly that the darkness has no choice but to run and flee. 
The kind of revolution that I'm talking about is where believers are sharing the love of God with others in such a way that there is no room for hate in men's heart. That's the kind of revolution that we need in our world today. And it goes further than that. We need a revolution in our world today where Christians are willing to stand up and they are willing to talk about salvation with such convincing proof. Salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. That the rest of the world, men and women from all tribes, all nations, no matter where they come from on the face of this earth, hear that gospel message. And it's with such conviction, with such power that they themselves say, that's what I need in my life. That's the kind of revolution that we need. And when Jesus is telling the disciples in that day, you are going to go into all of the world. You're going to be my disciples. This is what you are going to do. How well are we doing? At being his disciples. What we need in our world today is a disciple-making revolution. To take the words of Jesus seriously. And to understand that the call that he gave to those early disciples didn't end with them. And it continues on even to this day. So how do we do this? If I want to take this seriously in my life, how, how can I do this? What are some steps that I can take? Well, I think if we look at this passage today and we look at Paul and what Paul did, we, we have some things here that we can take and we can apply into our own lives. And the first thing I want you to see is this, that Paul reasoned with the people about who Jesus is. Look back with me at verse 2. We're going to kind of camp out in verses 2, 3, and 4 here for just a moment. Says Paul reasoned with the people about who Jesus is. Verse 2, it says, As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the Scriptures to reason with people. Now, I love that wording. It said, As was his custom, Paul goes into the synagogue. Have you heard those words before? When we look and we're reading about Jesus, we see those words used about Jesus. As was his custom. This was something that Paul was used to doing, and he would go to the synagogue. He shows up to this new town. He finds the synagogue. He goes there, but he doesn't just go there and sit to participate. He goes in there, and he begins to have discussion in the synagogue. He begins to have conversation with the people about the scriptures, and it says he reasoned with them about the word of God. Now the word reason that is used there is the same word that we use to get the word dialogue. So it's very simple that Paul goes into the synagogue, they have the scripture there, and Paul sits down with them, and they begin reading through the scripture, and they're saying, here's what God's word says, what do you think about that? What's your thoughts? And he begins to reason with them as they look at the scripture together. Now I want to remind you of something today. If you've never heard this before, I hope you get this, that there is power in God's Word. There is power when we open up God's Scripture. There is power when we sit down and we read it together. There is power in God's Word to change lives. I love what Hebrews 4.12 says. It says, for the Word of God is living, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's Word is alive. It is active. 
How many of you have been reading through God's Word, you read through it before, and you read through it again, and all of a sudden, something with power jumps out at you that you haven't ever seen before, and you're like, where was that? Anybody like that? It happens all the time. Why? Because God's Word is living and active. It's not changing. It's just living, and it's applying into our lives in different ways. There's power in God's Word. There's power that it's like a double-edged sword. It cuts right in to the very deepest, darkest parts of our lives and show us areas where we are far from God that God needs to work on. It's like it does surgery in our lives. God's Word is powerful. God's Word is very powerful. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. There is power in God's Word. There is direction in God's Word for our life. So Paul comes in and he sits down. They open up God's Word. They open up the Scripture. And he is showing them that there's power in the Scripture. There's power in God's Word. And he is showing them how Scripture's point to Jesus Christ. You can see Jesus in the scriptures. So Paul had dialogue with them and he reasoned with them. But then secondly, he explained to them. Look at verse three. It says, he explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. So not only does he sit down and they open up the scripture and they're talking about it, but now he begins to explain to them exactly what God's word says. Now I know that's where a lot of people start to put on the brakes. I don't have a problem opening up God's word with somebody. We can read it together. We can kind of give our thoughts on how that applies to our life. But now we have to explain it. Well, I've never been to seminary, so I can't explain it. I'm not a, a Bible student that way. I can't explain God's Word, so at this point, I'm out. I, I can't go that far. Well, let me give you a couple of things here to remember. First of all, don't minimize what the Spirit of God can do through you when it comes to explaining the Scriptures. God's Spirit has a way of opening up our spiritual eyes, our spiritual heart, our spiritual mind to understand the scripture that we have just read. He has a way of showing that to us in a way that we can show that to other people. So don't minimize the work of the Spirit in your life in helping you explain the scripture. And then secondly is this, when explaining the scriptures, always point to Jesus. So Paul explained through the scriptures, who Jesus was as he reasoned. And he now explains through the scripture of what Jesus did. Let me let you in on a little secret this morning that when you read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, everything points to Jesus Christ. Go to Jesus. Go to the cross. That's exactly what Paul does in this. He's explaining it to them and he takes them to the cross and he says, here's why Jesus must die. And here's why he rose again. Here's why Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. That's the explanation. That's where we're getting to is what Jesus Christ has done for others. And then the third thing in this is this. The early disciples had no formal seminary education. 
either. And Jesus said, go. Go into all of the world. He didn't say, after you've completed your schooling, your training, after 10 years of studying the Bible, then you're ready to go and explain it. He said, go. Go now. Go into all of the world. Be obedient and watch what I do. Now, I don't minimize seminary. I don't minimize school. Wasn't always my favorite places to be by any means. I still don't minimize them because there's good in that. But it's also not an excuse to sit back and say, I can't do that. Because we're good in our world of coming up with excuses, right? We come up with excuses of why I can't do this, why I can't do that. And that's all they are, are excuses. And when it comes to sharing the good news of the gospel of Christ, that is not an excuse for us. And then thirdly, notice that he persuaded them to follow Jesus. He persuaded them. Look back at verse 4. It says, Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. So there's this large group of people that are now followers of Christ because he persuaded them. He reasoned with them. He explained to them. And now he is persuading them. What is one of the easiest ways to persuade someone to do something. It's to tell them your own personal experiences, right? That is easy. I believe at this point, Paul has reasoned with them. Paul has explained to them. And now he says, now let me tell you what Jesus Christ has done for me. One of the greatest stories we can tell to anyone is what Jesus Christ has done to me personally in my life. Let me tell you how he has changed my life. And Paul was able to persuade many to believe in Jesus. It's amazing how good we are at persuading people to do things. I mean, somebody's getting ready to go on a vacation and we start telling them about our vacation spots that we've been to, how wonderful it was and how you need to go here and there. Next thing you know, they're planning their vacation to go where you told them to go. Or uh, we have... Uh, our favorite cars that we drive, right? We, we know how to persuade people about the that kind of car that we drive. And we know that because of personal experience of the kind of car that we drive. By the way, Tundra's got the, the top of the list. It's the best, car, best truck to get if you need to get a truck. Yeah, and some will laugh because they think they're... Yeah, whatever. It's easy to persuade people. Maybe not so easy on that. But here's a good example for you. So, uh, as I mentioned last Friday, we had Susie's memorial service. After the memorial service, we had a great meal down at the uh, well. And we go down there, and I just happened to walk over close to the dessert table because it was beside the drinks. And I just happened to see these world-famous chocolate chip cookies that Kara Stout made. If you've ever had her chocolate chip cookies, you know what I'm talking about. And so I, <laughs> I had to go over and get one, and I was set. My mind was made up. I'm getting one chocolate chip cookie. That's it. And I was proud of myself. I got one chocolate chip cookie. I went, by the way, that was before we ate the meal. And uh, we're sitting around the table, and we're all eating the meal together. And somebody around the table starts talking about these chocolate chip cookies. And I was telling them how proud I was of myself. I only got one. But they kept talking more and more about these chocolate chip cookies. And I was persuaded at that moment that I needed two more of those chocolate chip cookies. 
It's easy to persuade people, isn't it? We do it all the time. We do it every day. We persuade people in different things. But here's the reality. We can persuade people on which restaurants to go to. I can tell you where to go to get the best steak in town, and I can persuade you to go and try it. But I don't know of any restaurant in town that has changed anybody's life for eternity. I don't know of any chocolate chip cookie out there that has changed anyone's life for eternity. I know some that have come very close, but they're not changing lives for eternity. But I know a man who changes lives for eternity. His name is Jesus, and he changed my life. And if he changed my life, he can change your life. If he has done a work in me that he has done, he can do it for you. And we can persuade people of who Jesus is, but we have to be willing to engage with them and to jump in. But I want you to notice what happened in Thessalonica. Some received, some rejected, and some rioted. And the same is exactly true in our world today. Some will receive, some will reject, some will riot. But here's the good news. The results aren't left to us. They're up to God. We are to be faithful with what God has called us to do. Again, I'll point back in this passage that Paul was very quick to go and say, here's why Jesus Christ had to die. The reason that he had to die was because of your sin and my sin. That there was no way we could be good enough. There was not sacrifices that we could do enough of that would restore our relationship that's been broken because of sin in this world. There's nothing that we could do. So Christ had to die. He was the perfect sacrifice for each one of us. And that whosoever would place their faith and trust in him would be saved. Anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. And he persuades them, look at my life. Look at how he changed me. I am living proof that he changes lives. And as he shared that with them, people believed. And that is the message. And today you may be here. You may be hearing that for the first time. Maybe you've heard it for a million times, but it's never really sunk in. Can I tell you today, the most important decision you will ever make in this life is not whether you will have another chocolate chip cookie or not, but it is what you've done with Jesus Christ. And have you received him? The life-changing message of the gospel that is available to all who will receive. Today, if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is a great day for salvation. Today is a great day to open up your heart to him and say, yes, I believe. And to become a follower, a disciple of Christ. Now, maybe you have been a believer, a follower of Christ for many years. Maybe you are a brand new follower and believer of Christ. We have a mission. And that mission is to take this message that we are comfortable living and listening to in here out into the world. Because there's a world of people that are dying to hear that message. They need Jesus just as we need Jesus. And he died for all. Let's pray together.
Father, I thank you for your word today. Again, I thank you for the challenge that comes through your word. God, I pray that you would just use your word today to speak to our hearts. God, I do pray for anyone here today that may not know you as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray right now that your spirit would just draw them unto yourself. That God, today they would say yes to you. They would make that most important decision and they would say, I am a follower of Christ. God, I pray for each one of us in this room that as we leave this place today, that we would go out into the world, we would be that light that people so desperately need. God, we would not be concerned about how people are going to look at us, what people are going to say about us, what people are going to think of us. God, we would be quick to share the life-changing gospel message with everyone that we can. God, we thank you that you have given us the privilege, the opportunity uh, to not only be called your children, but to invite others to become your children as well. And I pray that this is not something that we would take lightly. God, it is something that we would see the honor in doing. And we would fulfill what you have asked us to do. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.